Yeah, having finished off um, just more than 21 years um, at the Cape Town Baptist Seminary, it's been my privilege to have done that and sense the Lord leading on to something else. And so basically as from the 1st of February next year, I'll be, I'll actually officially be what you might call a missionary, working specifically in the area of theological education with an organization that seeks to develop theological education within the developing world, or as I might say, the third world. So that's basically what I'm going to be doing, um, but maybe more of that um, a little bit later. So let me state the obvious. It will be Christmas soon. How do we know this? Well, by the dates, especially as today... If you follow the Christian calendar or the liturgical calendar, today is celebrated in many churches as the fourth Sunday of Advent. But we also know that it's going to be Christmas because of all the trimmings and the trappings of Christmas. Um, And we know that the malls begin celebrating as from the end of October already, um, preparing for us to spend all our money there. But, you know, if, if we leave it to them, I'm sure that they're going to be pushing that back. And you never know, maybe Christmas will soon intersect with Easter. And then we'll be hanging Easter eggs on our Christmas tree. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to Christmas, I know that when we think about Christmas, we often think about what we might call the different icons, the different images of Christmas that stands out. Um, One of that being Santa Claus, Father Christmas, um, whose origins and legend would have it is that of a a real person in history, by the way, um, St. Nicholas of Myra, who, it is alleged, actually smacked the the heretic Arius, because Arius denied the deity of Jesus. Now, we don't really know whether whether, um, St. Nicholas was actually present um, at the Council of Nicaea where where all of this happened, but, you know, as is the case with many stories like these, they become often legendary, um, and the truth of the person becomes buried under many, many layers, you know, of folklore, which in this case is, is Santa Claus, you know. Um, And due to commercialism, you know, who the real Santa Claus is, um, sometimes gets gets lost, as they say, um, in history. And as we know it today, it seems as if Coca-Cola got hold of him, and the rest, as they say, is history. There's so much so for, for Santa Claus. But then one of the other icons that we normally associate with Christmas is obviously the Christmas tree. And this is often, um, there's often a concern raised by, by many people that I hear every, every year around this time, you know, that, you know, these things that we celebrate as being Christian, you know, there are too many pagan um, origins associated with these. But, you know, this notion is often not cognizant of the fact that Christianity has often been able to contextualize itself. In other words, when Christianity has entered into a particular culture, what it is often attempted to do is to use the images, to use the symbols 
of that particular culture that's closely associated with Christian ideas and then to kind of re-baptize them um, along, along the Christian message. And, and, and this, this often happens. In fact, my slides are a bit out of order. Um, Indian Christians, for example, and we know that the, the tradition goes that it was St. Thomas, so-called Doubting Thomas, who eventually became the missionary to India, and as that message of Christianity got contextualized within the Indian context, they used some of the images within Hinduism and Buddhism and tried to use that images to communicate the Christian gospel. And for that reason, the, the, what is known as St. Thomas's cross ends in, in the flowers of the lotus, you know, because the lotus has long been associated with healing properties. And in fact, the cross is standing on a lotus leaf. So this idea of contextualizing the Christian message and taking you know, some of these ideas and rebaptizing them into a Christian meaning, you know, because for Indian Christians, that now, the lotus, is their own symbol of the tree of life, as we find recorded in the Bible. So at the end of the day, the same becomes true for the Christmas tree. And long have different cultures, especially in our modern day and age, you know, added their little bit to what originally was maybe behind the idea of the Christmas tree. For, you see, because for a long time, because the Christmas tree is actually just simply an evergreen tree, a tree that never changes with the seasons, becomes brown, as many of our trees do here um, in, when, when we enter into, into the autumn period, and then you know I have some work to do to rake up leaves. But it is this evergreen tree that has often been associated in different religions with the, with the idea of dying and rising gods. And so that is exactly what Christianity did. You know, when, when Christ came and the message of Christ and the message of life in Christ um, adopted that tree, which we also know that the concept of trees is important in the Bible, because in the book of Genesis we hear of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, which also makes its appearance at the end of days in the book of Revelation. Now, many of the practices that we have today, especially within our Christmas celebrations, actually comes from Europe, more particularly from, from Germany. And in fact, there are some nice, interesting stories around the origins of the Christmas tree. In fact, one of these stories centered in the great reformer Martin Luther, who he said that while he was walking um, home one evening through the woods, he saw the stars through these fir trees, and he, he came up upon the idea to share that experience with his wife and his family. So the, the legend goes that he took the fir tree, took it inside the home, and then took small candles and adorned the tree with his candles to kind of replicate that experience that he had. Now, whether that is true, I don't really know. But somehow or the other, the Christmas tree seemed to be born out of that. And, and with time, many started changing the candles and adding um, things like apples, you know, to kind of speak of the concept of the tree being the tree of life. And we obviously have replaced those apples with tinsel balls. <laughs> and that is the Christmas tree. But I don't know if you know that there's actually a Christmas tree in the Bible. That Christmas tree 
is recorded for us in, us in Matthew chapter 1. And that's the reading I'm going to be doing today. And I know that Matthew chapter 1 is not necessarily one of the most inspiring texts to be reading from. You know, because there's a whole list of names that reoccurs with, within this chapter. Which for many people, you know, it kind of looks like a telephone directory, but without the numbers. And if you want the numbers, you have to go to the fourth book of the Bible, which is the book of Numbers, where you will find the telephone numbers. In case you're wanting to contact one of these people in the Bible, I don't know. But for other people, they, the, uh, the, the passage almost comes across as like a list of credits in a movie, you know, and so these might be the list of credits in the Jesus movie that is going to be, that is going to be playing out. But well, actually... This passage is what we call a genealogy. And it's simply the family tree of Jesus, or as I'm wanting to share with you this morning, it is Jesus' family Christmas tree. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minidab. Minidab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Let's pause over there, because that's where you pause naturally in the text. Now, for those of you who might be familiar with the King James Version of this passage, you know, just like we call Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, because in the King James Version, it's, it says, it uses the old English word begat. It's often called the begat. So I've been tempted to read this now from the King James Version of the Bible, but you might not be able to identify with that. But let's continue. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matham. Matham, the father of Jacob. Nice names if you're considering to name one of your... Your kids, if you're an expecting mother. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all. From Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his, pe his people from their sins. There are many ways, I guess, to be able to decorate a Christmas tree. As you see them in the malls, and as you maybe visit different friends in their homes, each one seems to have their own unique way and their method of decorating a Christmas tree. In our home, a few years ago, we developed the tradition that we adorn our Christmas tree with Christmas ornaments from around the world. So if we have the opportunity of traveling somewhere, that's normally one of the things we like to bring home, a, a little Christmas ornament that often speaks of the way in which Christmas is celebrated within that culture. Or if people travel, we ask them, if you are able to bring us a gift, bring us a Christmas ornament. And so that's the way in which we decorate our Christmas tree. And you and your family might also have your own way of decorating your own tree. But I wish to highlight this morning how this genealogy, how this Christmas family tree of Jesus has been decorated for us. And there are four ways, that are four unique ways in which I want to highlight how this Christmas family tree that we have just read through has been decorated. First of all, we find that this Christmas tree has been decorated by sovereignty. You see, if you listen very, very carefully to all the names that was read out, then you will discover that this family tree, this genealogy of Jesus, serves to illustrate essentially two things. That Jesus was Jewish and that his blood was bluish. <laughs> there are two genealogies of Jesus recorded in Scripture. One is in Luke, but Luke's genealogy traces Jesus' lineage through Mary. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. You know, because we believe that Matthew's gospel was a gospel that was written primarily for the Jews. And so the story of Jesus has to be presented in a way that would be acceptable to him. But also to show that Jesus is a person that has got good lineage. But both of them essentially ties it back to King David. So this obviously would, would then also be important in terms of the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus came came to be as the king of the Jews, as a term, that, that would be important for a Jewish audience to show that he's not only a true blue Jew, ethnically, but that politically, in a sense, he would also qualify to be a king. And that is what the nation was expecting, weren't they? We know that story very well. They, however, wanted not the kind of king that Jesus was going to present himself as. They wanted a political messiah. They wanted a messiah who would come in and get rid of the oppression that they were experiencing from the enemies, which at this time within the New Testament was the Romans. 
But as we will see, and as we know the story very well, that Jesus was concerned about a greater oppression than just the mere physical oppression that they were experiencing. He was more concerned about the spiritual oppression and the spiritual bondage under which they found themselves. And so Jesus' genealogy is like a who's who of the kings of the Old Testament in a way to show to the Jews that this person, this Jesus, he has got pedigree. He is connected to all the kings, the great kings of the Old Testament. And so he therefore would qualify to be king. And so that's the first way in which this tree is decorated. The second way, however, in which this tree is decorated is it's decorated in scandal. You see, when you read through the story once again, you'll see that many of these kings listed here were not always upstanding characters befitting the high office to which they were called. In fact, some of them were amongst the worst kings in the Old Testament. Let's mention a few of them. A king like Manasseh, who was so far away from God that he rejected God's word, even through the prophet Isaiah, and legend has it that he killed Isaiah by sawing him in half. And even the greats, like King David mentioned here within the passage, we are reminded that he was a king of great failing. In fact, the way it is mentioned here within the text in Matthew chapter 1 verse 6 describes him as in, in the following way. Jesse fathered David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. In other words, what he's doing for us here is saying, uh -huh. remember what happened? But if you think that that would make a good episode for that ancient Israelite soap opera according to the day of their, days of their lives, then consider some of the other characters here within this passage. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 mentions just in passing, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now if you know a little bit of the Old Testament and you read the story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, you will discover that Tamar goes through an elaborate ruse in order to fool Judah, who's actually her father-in-law, to get her pregnant, and out of that pregnancy, she gives birth to two children. Then there's another person mentioned over here. Josiah fathered Jeconiah. Now, Jeconiah is also known in the Old Testament by his other name, King Jehoiachin. And we are told here that Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, Jeconiah was that particular king to whom Jeremiah the prophet preached, presented God's word in, in a scroll that Baruch his scribe had recorded. And when it was presented to Jeconiah, Jeconiah rejected that message and threw the scroll into the fire. He was only king for three months before he was carried off into exile. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, we hear this of Jeconiah, one of the family of Jesus. This is what the Lord says. The Lord says, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. 
And so you might be wondering why it is, just like the royal family in England, you only find the first names of the people mentioned. And by the way, the family name of the royal family, and this might help you in your next trivial pursuit um, endeavor, is either Windsor or Mountbatten Windsor. You know, and so people don't realize it, but they just think about Queen Elizabeth and all of the other royals by their first name. And so maybe that is what this passage is trying to tell us, that all of these people actually had the same surname, which is very clearly Sinner. <laughs> but this family Christmas tree of Jesus is also decorated with surprise. There are maybe just quickly four surprises I want to mention um, as you read through this passage. First of all, there are women mentioned within this genealogy. This is not a typical Jewish genealogy. You know, Jewish men didn't often deem women important enough to be put in a genealogy. But this is what Matthew does. Highlights that even women can be part of this genealogy. Secondly, some of the women themselves aren't necessarily you know, reputable people. Like Rahab. You know, Rahab was a, a prostitute. Um, and then we mentioned Tamar earlier. Um, but then there are also other women that are honorable women, like Ruth. And the other thing that is significant to note about this genealogy is that all these women are foreign women who have been brought into the genealogy. And then the fourth surprise in this passage, the twist in the tale, happens in verses 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph. Then there's a twist. The husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. In other words, every Jew, when they would have read this passage and they came here, would have understood exactly what Matthew was trying to do, to show them that Joseph was not the true father of Jesus, but rather that Jesus was born another way. And that is how the fourth way in which this tree has to be acknowledged to be decorated. Because we are told that she will give birth to a son and she will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What's in a name? That is the question that you all know was asked by Juliet to, to Romeo in that famous Shakespearean tragedy in which she considers a relationship with Romeo in the midst of this ongoing family dispute between the Montagues and the Capulets. You see, in the play, that phrase, what's in a name, is an expression um, in which a name is deemed insignificant. A name is deemed unimportant. But you see, when, when one comes to the Bible, then we need to realize and we need to understand that a name in the Bible is actually very important because in the Bible, a name says a lot. In the Bible, a name is more than just a means of identifying one person from another. But it is a, actually a reflection of the person's character and often a description of the purpose and the mission that they had to fulfill as an individual. And that is so true 
of many of the names in this genealogy because they serve, they, they serve that purpose, reflecting the character of, this, of the person. And many of them, as you would have seen, were flawed personalities, failed leaders, people of questionable reputation, yet others of lofty character. You see, they were actually just like us. Because we have the same surname, we have the same family name as them. And that is sinner. So this is how the family tree starts. Abraham, the father of many. David, whose name means the beloved. Since despite his major failings, becomes the prototypical king of Messiah. Jeconiah, that means the Lord, has established. You see, all these names within the Old Testament that ends A-H, ah, has got what we call the Yahwistic element in that name, meaning that the Lord's name, that God, some character of God, is reflected within that person's name. Until ultimately it comes to Jesus, whom we are told His name means salvation. Uzziah means the Lord is power, or the Lord gives strength. Josiah means the Lord heals. And Jesus, in the, in the tradition of many of these names in the Old Testament, that reflects this great story, this grand narrative of the Bible, that the Lord heals spiritually. The Lord saves. You see, the family tree of Jesus is a highly decorated Christmas family tree, which right at the bottom of this family tree, and that's the reason why we do it, that's the reason why we place gifts at the foot of the Christmas tree. Because it serves as a reminder that all wrapped up within those beautiful gifts is something just for me, is something special that somebody special has bought to give me. And that's the gift that is made available to us through this story, through this family Christmas tree. It's that gift we call the gift of salvation. God's grace that has been poured out through the life of a person, Jesus. The gift of salvation, all wrapped up and ready for us to open it up and to receive it and to accept it. And that grace and that gift is free. But it is costly because the giver of that gift gave his life. And therefore, when he offers that gift to us, he requires of us, he demands of us that we give him something in return, which is our life. You see, I like the way in which the Gospel of John summarizes the story of the birth of Jesus. Whenever I ponder the words of John chapter 1 verse 14, I'm amazed how God, in this simple words, ties up the whole purpose of Jesus being born through this elaborate family Christmas tree. The Word became flesh. I have it over there in the message version. And He dwelt amongst us. Or, as Eugene Peterson puts it, He moved into our neighborhood. I like the way in which a literal translation reads, He tabernacled with us. So just like the people in the Old Testament would meet God in the tabernacle or in the tent of meeting that Moses has put up, here we are told God takes the initiative. And through this elaborate 
History presents to us a person who is God in the flesh, who is God incarnate, so much so that John and the disciples could say, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only begotten Son. And so we remind ourselves this famous nativity scene. And I particularly like this picture, you know, because even the nativity scene is often caught up in, in folklore, is caught up in legend, you know. We often see Jesus born in a stable, and we picture a stable as this little hut where the animals would be kept as we do it far away from people. But in reality, the stable was actually part of the house. It was in the lower part of the house. Um, and, and, and that is where God chose for His Son to be born, in very humble circumstances. Today, if you go and visit the city of Bethlehem, um, a lot of that has been removed, you know, and a lot of that has been religiousified, as they say. So you can go to the Church of the Nativity, and you'll discover that there's a little nook that is called the place of the Nativity, the place where they believe in that cave where, where Jesus was born. But you see, for me, it's asking that question in our contemporary experience. If Jesus were to be born today, where would he be born? I don't think it would be Pinelands. But that is the reason why Jesus was born. And that's the reason why we have this elaborate family Christmas tree. So that when we get caught up in the hustle and the bustle, especially in the next two days, to, to go and buy those last few gifts, all that we are doing, and in fact many people in the world are doing without realizing it, they are just simply enacting, reenacting that which God has done, giving us a gift, a very, very precious gift, the gift of His Son, Jesus. And that gift we call the gift of salvation. So when you take a look at your own Christmas tree, if you are in the tradition of having Christmas trees, no matter how you might have decorated your tree, allow the message of that Christmas tree to come out. Allow that message to be told. You, each one of us, need to take that responsibility and then to say to those to whom we give a gift, we give you this gift, a sacrifice of ours, as a reflection of the gift that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ, to give us the greatest gift that has even, ever been given, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. And so, gracious Father, we want to thank you that while Christmas might be celebrated in so many different ways, Ultimately, it points to what you have done for us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. And so we pray that if there might be those, even within our congregation today, while they acknowledge that gift, we pray that you might help them to understand the importance of receiving this gift above all other gifts. And may the true meaning of Christmas become a reality for them as they accept and as they decorate their lives with the gift of salvation. Amen.